0: Over the last, uh, probably about a month now, we've been going through the Gospel of Luke, looking at the cost of discipleship. And we ended that discussion in Luke 14, verses 34 and 35, which is where I'd like you to turn, because I want to go into chapter 15 to tie out the context of this account. (coughs) Oh, children for the junior church, yes. I love them so much, I want them to stay in right now, okay? You guys can be dismissed, all right? So turn to Luke 14. We ended the discussion on cost-counting Christ following with the small paragraph that ends that portion of Scripture. Verse 34 says this. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, its effect, potency, and influence, how can it be made salty again? If the salt isn't salty, there is no adequate substitute. And in the ancient world, it was critical that you had salt for preservation and for adding taste to food, as it loses its saltiness, as it becomes diluted and negatively affected, it is fit neither for the soil nor for the manure pile, that is, it has no value whatsoever. Instead, it is thrown out onto a path where it can't do any harm. Matthew 5 says, it is thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. It becomes grit, okay, quarry dust. It becomes stuff that blows around and blows away and becomes absolutely and utterly irrelevant. At the end of that text, you find a very strong and implied warning. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Okay, after saying it is possible for your life to become futile and empty of vital, compelling purpose, Jesus says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what I have just said. And what he has just said is, if you want to follow me, you're going to have to count the costs. You're going to have to become intentional. You're going to have to become sacrificial. You're going to have to become willing to be God's influence in your sphere that God has called you to live in. And so we've been challenging ourselves along that lines. This picture of salt basically is to, in summary, say this. Your life has God-intended and God-given potential. Your life has God-given and God-intended potential. One of the saddest things that you ever watch is somebody who has incredible potential and throws it down the stairs as a result of bad and unwise decisions. We watch that probably most frequently in our culture, an area that captures our attention, the area of athletics. We watch incredible athletes sacrifice unbelievable potential for the most foolish and temporal pleasures. And when you watch that happen, and you can think, I'm not going to give any names because you should be able to think of names of star athletes who have had an incredible impact on their culture and then because of sensual or sexual or uh, substantive pleasures have thrown their influence down the stairs. And here's the word that comes to mind. And here's the statement, the question or the, the kind of the exclamation that you give. Here's what most people say, what a waste, what a waste so much potential, so much ability to influence and impact the culture, and wasted, wasted. Can I say this this morning? I do not personally want to get the end of, to the end of my life and find out that I have wasted it. I don't want to get to the end of my life and find out I wasted it. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. Paul said, the compelling purpose of my life is to hear from the Father, well done, good and faithful servant. So you are the salt of the earth. Matthew 5 extends it. You are the light of the world. You are God's influence in a fallen world. You are the people that God wants to use to make a difference. Don't waste your influence. Make your life count for the glory of God, which will mean intention, which will mean sacrifice, which will mean incredible effort, because what you have entered into is not a sprint. It is a marathon. Jesus said to his disciples, if you're going to come after me, if you're going to follow me. These are the qualifications that must be fulfilled in order to finish the race. My daughter Erica, I, as far as I know, ran a marathon this morning. Okay, Haven't heard from her yet? Doesn't answer her cell phone. Okay? I can tell you this. She has spent the last year in preparation for that day. Because here's what happens. If you show up in a marathon with no practice and no preparation, you're going to die. Okay? You're just not going to finish the race. You're going to be like the man who built a building and didn't draw up a budget, and he got halfway done and found out, I can't complete the task. Okay, it is, when you say yes to Jesus, you say, yes, I will follow you. It Understand this. It is going to cost you. But the cost of being an influencer for the kingdom of God is always worth paying. So here's the question I ask you. God created you with a purpose. Do you want to fulfill that purpose? And I think you should seriously contemplate the question, do I want to spend my life with nothing to show, or do I want to invest my life in a purpose that will last forever? You see, folks, that's the choice that we have to face. I can spend my life pursuing a lot of things, and I'm going to tell you this, there are a lot of things that your pastor likes to do. Okay? Okay. I have so many things I like to do. Too many things. And I have to constantly fight. Maintain focus and purpose. And here's what I try to do. Okay? In the, people say, do you have a hobby? I said, no. I have hobbies. Okay. In every area of your life, in every sphere of influence, in every passion that God has given you to live, wrap the gospel into every part of it. See, it's not that the things that we do are wasted time. If we wrap kingdom purposes into them, we will find that our influence is amplified. And that our impact for the kingdom of God begins to multiply. And it is the greatest joy to find your life making a difference in someone else's life for the glory of God. Okay, I'm going to tell you this. Everything else you live for, when you're on your deathbed, When your life draws to an end, one thing will matter. One thing. It's the thing that mattered to Paul at the end of his life. You know what he said? He said, Timothy, come to me and come quickly. You know, folks, I have never, beside the bed of a person that is dying, had them ask for their checkbook or their motorcycle. It may happen someday. Wait and see. Or... I haven't had nothing. Not their golf clubs. Not their retirement account. Nothing. You know what they ask for? People. You know why? Because embedded in your heart, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, is eternity. And there is only one thing that will last for eternity that is in existence right now on this planet. And that is people. One thing. And at the end of your life, all of your accomplishments will not matter. But, Your impact on the life of others will be the joy of your life. And the hope of heaven with Christ will be the joy of your life and the hope that those that you love will be with you there. That is what sustains. Everything else is fading. Everything else you have, all of your athletic abilities and prowess, of which mine are limited, and they are already fading. Okay, it's just, I'm telling you, if you live for the temporal, you will be disappointed at the end of your life. And the end of your life is coming. Mark it down. That's why David said this. He said, Lord, teach us to number our days. That we may gain a wise heart. That we may gain a heart of understanding. About what? About what really matters. That we won't waste our lives. But that instead we will say, God, I want to be the salt Potent, influential that you intended for me to be. Now, here's the question that comes up. How is that going to happen? I'm just going to give you four thoughts this morning because I'm as hot as you are, okay? So we'll try to move quickly and with no energy, okay? I forgot that part, okay? I said before I get up, I just have to stay monotone today. Your life has God-given potential, but it is an opportunity that you can waste. That's the warning. He who has ears to hear... Let him hear. And the idea is this. Don't simply hear the words. Listen. Listen. That's what mom says to a child. Listen. Getting ready to go from the car into the grocery store in the parking lot. Not, do you hear me? Listen to me. Because crossing this parking lot could cost you your life if you don't listen. Okay, do you understand? That's how the Savior's coming here. This is an implied strong warning. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Be responsive to the directors of Christ that deal with discipleship because it matters so powerfully. Salt can lose its saltiness. It can become diluted or contaminated. Therefore, every Christian in this room should, in order to be the influence that God wants them to be, should be pursuing purity. Okay, I know I ended on this topic last week. In my notes, I had an illustration. If you want to make a difference in your sphere where you live. If you want to be an influencer, you need to guard your heart. You need to maintain personal purity. About three months ago, a lady visited our church. She sat, I believe it was over to this side because she was with Mindy Wells. Okay? Have you ever had that, that, like, I know you? Okay? She had that. She came up to me after church and said, I know you. So, how do you know me? She said, I managed the blockbuster in Philipsburg. Where you rent movies. Whoa. All right, that, that's like a. Oh, okay. okay. Why are you here? What are you doing in my church? Okay, You're not supposed to come to church. That's why I go to Phillipsburg and not Washington. Here's the thought that ran through my mind. Okay. There's a woman that already knows me. Right. I'm going to tell you something. She didn't know I was the pastor of this church. A friend of teachers of karate invited her to this church. She sat down as he said, I know him. I'm going to tell you something. The kind of movies that I have rented there determined whether she heard me or not, determined whether my influence was completely negated or enhanced. Do you understand? And people are watching your life and. God has always, He has a fascinating way of surrounding your life with His loving fences and care. And the first thought that ran through my mind was I hope that my testimony, my influence in that environment has not been utterly negated. Because she knew me right away. So here's the test Are you pursuing purity? In every relationship so that you can maximize your God-given influence. It's what it means. If the salt loses its saltiness, if it becomes infected or diluted, negatively affected, it becomes worthless and is thrown out. Philippians 2 and verse 16, just listen to this. Paul said, in this crooked and depraved generation, you are to be blameless, pure children of God without fault. Without a stinging or sticking indictment in a crooked and depraved generation because there you are shining like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Now folks, I don't think Paul means that we're to walk around doing this okay I don't think he's saying we should go you should go to work tomorrow and do this just walk into the school you the teach okay Ryan go to the airport okay All right Jesse, you go to school tomorrow here. Brent, you go to physical therapy when you start working here. Lay it on someone's back. Is that what he's saying? Okay? I I, I think I'm fairly sure. That he's not saying, saying to the New Testament believers, take a scroll of the Old Testament Scriptures, and when you go, just hold it out and be a light. But what he is saying is that the decisions that I make, the attitude that I carry myself with, has an effect. Look, it's easy to complain about your world. Point out all the things that are wrong. But God didn't call you to be a complainer. God called you. To shine like brilliant lights in the universe. He wants your life to go out there and make a difference. And the only way that you can do that is to pursue purity. And as you pursue purity, here's what happens. You, in your lifestyle, are putting the Word of God in a setting that enhances its beauty. You are not the gospel per se, but you are the setting in which God, in His wisdom and grace, has placed the gospel Okay, It's why when a young man goes out to buy an engagement stone, okay, he is concerned about the setting. Does the setting amplify and magnify the beauty of the stone? That's the purpose of the setting. Not to distract from it, but to hold it up and to display its incredible beauty, even if it's small. Okay, if you look at my wife's ring, you know that that is absolutely true. Okay, In fact, she's getting it worked on Okay, to make it a little bit nicer. The fate of our light, the fate of our influence is always almost indiscernible and slow. You need to be passionate and pursue purity because your life is the setting in which the word of God is seen. The setting can distract from the beauty of the gospel. Be sure you live a pure life for the glory of God. Be careful how you live. Secondly, this thought. Be sustained and saturated in prayer. And I just feel the need to tie this into this discussion because I don't want you to think that by sheer will, you're going to make a decision today to say, you know what, I'm going to go out of here and I am going to be an influence. In your flesh, you cannot do it. Paul said this, he said, if by the flesh we put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live, you will make a difference. Okay, God does not want you to live the Christian life alone in your own strength. He wants us to experience a committed, crucial pattern of prayer. Because if you talk to Him on a daily basis, He will infect you with what He loves. Here's my compelling statement to you. Don't try this alone. Don't say, okay, I want to make a difference. If you do this simply because you want your life to matter, you want your life to have a purpose, it will fall short. You need to do this. Christian living. For the glory of God. To go out and say, God, I want my life to be used by you. We have a tendency in American Christianity to allow busyness and preoccupation with personal pursuits to kill this habit in our life. And the results are far more devastating than we can even imagine. And I'm going to tell you right now as your pastor, I wrestle with this because I am so easily pulled off the task. Because my mind is constantly racing. We need to set up patterns of prayer. Spending time with God. Saturated. Because if I don't saturate my life with prayer, here's what will happen. You will never attempt a great life for God. Because you'll know from past attempts that you can't do it. And you will tend to live a very frustrated life. We have a tendency in many aspects of American Christianity, to live a life that can be done in our power with our resources. Okay, we tend in our Christian experience to live at the limit of what we can do. When we pray, we begin to experience what God can do. Okay, so don't live a limited, a restricted life with a governor on it. Live a life that is filled with the Spirit because it is saturated with prayer and seeks the power of God and says, God, I, can't, I know what you want me to do, but I can't do it. I want to go into school. I am positive. There are teenagers sitting here who have gone into school recently and said, God, I want my life to make a difference. And what I beg of you as teens is pray and pray and pray as if it all depends on God. Just pray and pray and pray. If the Apostle Paul could say this, listen to this, Colossians 4 and verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer Be watchful and thankful. And pray for us too. That God may open a door for our message. So that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. For which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. What is Paul saying? I can't do this. God called me to proclaim the gospel and I can't. Pray that I will proclaim it boldly as I should. Ephesians 6. Pray for me also That whenever I open my mouth, words may be given to me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly. That blew my mind two years ago when I studied through Corinthians. The Apostle Paul, bold, strong, persistent for Christ, cries out to the church in Colossae, cries out to the church in Ephesus, pray for me that I will declare the word of God boldly as I should. What is his fear? It is the same fear that you and I wrestle with. If I engage someone in a conversation gospel-centered, will I know what to say? And will I declare it boldly and clearly? Or will I fall down? That's our fear. That's why most of us never open our mouth about the most important message that we could ever share, the glorious gospel of Christ. The result of prayerlessness is that we always attempt a weak life. We never go beyond our personal resources. We never allow ourselves to step into a place where we're unsure. Can I give you this challenge from an interaction I had with a new disciple this week who was sharing with me how he was attempting to share his faith with people at work? He's a new Christian. You know what I said to him? I said, hey, man, you need to wait till you're in Christ a little bit longer before you start sharing your faith. All right? Is that what I said to him? I hope not. I was sharing that with someone else, a friend at Men's Bible Study, and I said, this, this guy's a new believer, and he thinks he should be out sharing his faith. And I told him he needed to wait. And this brother is a sincere, wonderful Christian man. He said to me, you shouldn't have told him that. <laughs> okay, he gets it. But you know what? If, if God saved you, you have enough to say. If you know that you were a sinner, lost and bound for hell, and you know that a Savior died on Calvary's cross to pay the price for your sin, it is not a matter of knowing enough. It is simply a matter of prayerful obedience. It is simply a matter of saying, God has given me a message. He has called me to share it. And he wants me to go out and make a difference in my sphere. The only way that will happen, I am confident, is if you are prayerful about it on a regular basis. Here's the question for you. Do you plan to attempt and do anything that takes you beyond your personal resources? Are you willing to step into a relationship where you know I don't? And God, Look, I want to tell you something. If you ever call me for help, for counsel, on my way to your house, you know what I'm crying out to God saying? I'm saying, God, I, I don't know what to say to someone. I don't have an answer. But you know why I'm going? I'm going because it's what God called me to do. Just, you told me to go do this. I don't know why you asked me to do this. I don't know why you chose me to do this. But I'm just... I'm simply going to go and do what you told me to do. Folks, listen. Jesus said to his disciples, they're going to drag you before magistrates. This is in the early church, and this is true in the vast majority of the unevangelized world today. When people place faith in Christ, they do it under threat and under personal loss, some of their own lives. I read one account this week of a pastor and his wife. Can't remember the country. Both drug out of their house and killed. Abducted, found later, dead. I'm not afraid of that happening to me. Not where I live. I'm afraid of whether people are going to like me or not. And so I stay silent about what matters most, and I never attempt anything that takes me beyond my personal ability. May God help us. May God help you personally. To say, God, drag me beyond my resources. I want to tell you something. When you start living the life, that intentional, cost-counting, radically committed life, you will experience a joy that is just utterly unbelievable because what you're going to have to say at the end of the day is this. I didn't do that. I couldn't do that. I sat last Sunday with a couple that visited us, Bill and Sue, the husband's and wife's name. Bill's sister, Jane, came with them to church. We went out to eat after church. Had a gospel conversation that lasted well over an hour and a half. You're surprised I could talk that long, right? It was interactive. At the end, I said to Jean, I said, Jane, why don't you lead us in prayer? Now, she told me her story. Her story is, I trusted Christ 17 years ago 30 years old. I lived a reckless, self-centered, self-abandoned life. And God got my heart. She, and she's been praying for her brother and sister-in-law for 17 years. She bowed her head. You know what happened? tears of joy the reason I shared that story with you last week is not to make me look good here's the reason every time I have an encounter like that you know what I find out behind the scenes for years for years for years somebody's been praying All you are is the answer to God's prayer. That's all you are. I'm going to tell you something. Jane didn't leave that lunch sad. And neither did I. She said thank you. You know what I said? My pleasure. I left that place just shake my head like, God, that is amazing. That encounter in Frenchtown happened because that woman has been praying for years. And the only reason I was able to get in contact with that guy again was because she contacted me and said, I'm praying for them. Please keep in touch with him. How do you say no to that? How do you say no to that? Folks, this is, look, if we catch this vision that our life is influence, keep it pure, keep it full prayer saturated and watch what God in his mercy and grace will begin to do through your life in your sphere of influence. I had Two emails that came to me earlier in the week, people were expressing situations that God put them in this week where they had an opportunity to make a difference, and they took the opportunity, and they were not disappointed. God wants to use your life. It must be prayer saturated in order for it to be a useful life. I turn your attention just real quickly to chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. The text says, now tax collectors and sinners, and I want you to see the connection here. Go out and evangelize. Be salt and light. Now tax gatherers and sinners were, were all gathering around to hear Him. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. He welcomes sinners and eats with them. He cares about them. And in the New Testament time period, the acceptance and invitation of someone into your house for a meal was called table fellowship. Fellowship. In the Middle East, when you invite someone into your house, what you are saying is, I receive you as a guest in my house, and I honor you as a guest in my house. That is what the sinless Son of God was doing with the worst of the worst. With tax gatherers and people that had the reputation of being sinners. To them, He went and spent time and was willing to engage in their lives. And the question that comes to my mind is this. Why? Why did Jesus do that? The next three parables that are listed in Luke 15 answer the question, why? And the answer to the question is this. Passion. The life of Jesus Christ was characterized by an absolute and incredible purity. It was also a prayer-saturated life because every time He was attempting something great for His Father, He went into a time of prayer and asked for the Father's help. Because He lived with a passion that those that are lost would be found. And in order to express that passion, Jesus shares two very simple parables. One about a lost sheep, one about a lost coin. Now, if you've ever lost something in your life, which I have a lot of experience with, okay, if you've ever done that there is this this kind of dissonance in your life, this disconnect in your life that it, it's like an, an an angst that you feel that it's lost and you're saying, I gotta find that. Now, I get over that quickly because my mind goes on to the next thing, okay, Last year at the Christmas, a year ago now, I lost my camera at the Christmas dinner, okay? Three months later, I started thinking about that. Came to the school office and I said, did you guys find a camera like three months ago? And they're like, yeah, it's got your pictures on it. Because I'm thinking, why don't you call me? (laughs) So they gave me my camera. I went skiing with uh, my wife and another friend. Took the camera, okay? Well, last March, I couldn't find my camera again. I didn't find my camera again until I went skiing again this year. Okay. Now, all the time I'm saying to my wife, it's kind of weird. I, I, I had my camera. I lost it. I found it at the school. Incredible set of circumstances. and what did I do when I found it? I called her. Why? Cause that loop got closed. I misplaced my camera. They found my camera. Okay. When, when I, when I got it into my hands and I looked at a couple pictures, like, that's my camera. Okay. I didn't keep that to myself. I called my wife and said, I found my camera. And then I lost it again. Then I'm downstairs rummaging around in my, in my ski bag getting ready to go skiing. And when I found that, it's just out oh, there. It doesn't set it to the side. No, you know, no, because that, that dissonance, that lostness of something, when it's found, it there's this thing that wells up inside of you, this, I got it. I got it back. Well, I was thinking, well, why don't you like, duct tape it to your wrist or something? <laughs> All right. It's this, and you know this. Okay, I was talking to a friend this, this week. I'm not going to mention his name because this will make him look bad. He said, I had lost something in my keys to my car in my house. I wasn't going to leave my house till I found those keys. I think he told me it was three hours. His wife was like, would you just leave? Okay. Just like, got to fight because there's this dissonance. Jesus lived with the dissonance, with an unfilled void. You know what he it? He saw the lost. And to express his heart, his passion, and the heart of God, he told two stories. He told the story of a shepherd who had 100 sheep. He comes back to the fold and he does the count, which is what they would always do, count them going in. 99, how many were missing? One. You know what the story says? Won't he, and it's just the way Jesus sets up, a, it's a parable, it's a story that he's creating to communicate a truth. Won't the shepherd, who he counts 99, he says, no, close enough. No, in the story he says, he couldn't deal with the dissonance, with the emptiness, with the thought that one is out there. And so what does he do? He parks the ninety and nine. And he goes on a deliberate, intentional search. And it says he searched until he found it. And when he found it, he came back with great rejoicing. And then there's a the story of a woman who has ten coins of great value. Probably a day's wage at that time. She loses one of the ten coins. And she, the Bible says she lights a lamp and she starts sweeping up the whole house. What is she doing? She's looking for the coin. She's dealing with the dissonance. Something is not right. And when she finds the coin, and the the parable is to kind of elaborate the joy. That's the purpose of the parable. To paint a truth about heaven in terms of earth. He says when she finds the coin, she calls together all of her friends, which is the weird part of the story, isn't it? But Jesus is trying to elaborate a greater truth. And at the end of each parable, she finds the coin, she calls a party. He finds the lamb, And he calls a party, a celebration. And then I love this. He says, in the same way, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over what? One One sinner that repents. You know what that tells me? It tells me that God is passionate about the lost. Are you? Are you? Jesus was so passionate about the loss that he hung out with people that gave him a bad reputation. They could say, he's the friend of sinners, and he eats with them. As if that was a slam. Jesus says, let me tell you what the father is like. He's just like the guy that loses a sheep. He's just like the lady that loses a coin. And, which, by the way, would be a backstab to use the woman as an illustration in the ancient culture. Because she didn't matter. You know what Jesus is saying? They matter. The guy matters, the girls matters. He just so carefully ties together that story, and at the end he says, You know what? In the same way, what is Jesus saying? He's saying the joy in heaven over the repentance and salvation of a sinner is like that party. Now, when you read the story of the party, guess what? It's extravagant, especially the one at the end of chapter fifteen. You know what Jesus is saying? It's like that. Meaning what? Oh, it's so much better in heaven. It's like that, but it's nothing like that. Do you understand? It's like that, but it is so much better. Folks, do you understand this? The day that you got on your knee and confessed your sin to Christ in your heart and repented of your sin and trusted the Savior, heaven for a party? For who? For a sinner, for a rebel, for one that was lost and now is found. I mean, that's the, that's the heart of God. There are stories that talk about loss, about a diligent search, and about an unbridled sense of rejoicing because someone who was lost is home. Folks, let this sink in. And I remind you of Father's joy in heaven. This is Father's heart. And it, that passion of Christ that led him to spend time with unseemly types, Is the passion that should unleash us to go out and say, I want to be Saul, I want to be a cost counting follower of Christ, because there is something out there that matters to God. And it has created in his heart a dissonance. It's the same thing that you find in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, isn't it? Adam and Eve sin. God comes in the cool of the day saying, Adam, where are you? Something is lost. And there is a moment of restoration and reconciliation that is glorious and beautiful and should cause us to celebrate. This is the heart of Father. And when the lost is found, what happens? What is he passionate about? He throws a party. And here's the way it works in Zephaniah 3. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save you. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love and rejoice over you with singing. Folks, do you understand that the God of the Old Testament isn't the Father in Heaven that Jesus is talking about in Luke 15? That the Father in heaven who rejoices over the lost that are saved is the same Father in Luke 15 who rejoices when what is lost is found and when his rebel son comes home? Are you passionate about what God is passionate about? If you are, you will pursue purity. You will cultivate a passionate prayer life. And I mean this just to be the norm of your life. Maintain purity on your knees before God because he wants you to have his passion. Sin will always kill your evangelistic heart. Always. You say, well, I'm not sharing my faith. I can pretty much assure you that there is some sin in your life unconfessed, at least the sin of not having the heart of God. And folks, when Jane shared her testimony with me last Sunday afternoon, you know what I felt? I felt joy. When I hear you, as my brothers and sisters in Christ, share of when you trusted Christ, you know what I feel? I feel joy. I love baptism services. I love hearing your testimonies. And I love when we just praise God for what he's done in people's lives. Because that is what happens in heaven. That is the passion that motivates and drives the party in heaven. May God give us this kind of passion For the lost. But this seeking. Is always done. And please understand this. This seeking. Pure. Prayerful and passionate. Is always done in the context. Of relationships. Always. And it never happens. Apart from. Relationships. Okay. So where you work. And where you go to school and the neighborhood in which you live is your God-given opportunity to make a difference for the kingdom of God. Would you seize the day? Would you go home today and say, God, tomorrow morning, I want to get up a little bit earlier so that I can connect with you, maintain purity and passion for what matters to you? God is committed to finding the lost. And when you join him in what he is doing, you will have a greater joy in your life. And if you're not seeking the lost, I can guarantee you this, your life will lack this higher joy that will set your life in a glorious way on fire to seek and to pursue the glory of God. This kind of Christ following must take priority over everything else in your life. And as a friend said to me, Gary McCarthy said this to me two weeks ago, he came up after service and he said, Pastor Tim, This is simple, but it's not easy. This is simple, but it's not easy. Meaning, it's not complicated. A child, a teenager, a young person, an adult can understand it. But let's be honest. Most of us aren't doing it. It's simple. But it's not easy to be a cost-counting Christ follower. Because the commitment level is radical. It is expensive to follow Christ. And that's why Jesus said, if you won't take up the cross and be my disciple, you can't follow me. If you won't deny yourself, you can't follow me. You can't be the influence that I want you to be. May God help us to kill what dilutes our influence. Just to kill it. By the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the flesh, and you will, Romans 8.13, live. Jesus wants you today to have an abundant life. I have never met an abundant, joyful Christian who is not evangelistic. Just think of the happy Christians that are happy in Christ. I guarantee you, they're people who can't contain it. They can't. You, you cannot know this, and not, you can't find your camera after a year and not tell somebody. Okay, for me it was a bit of a brag because it was a victory. Okay, but when God uses you to see someone come to Christ, you will not be able to contain it. I promise. I promise, and you will be joining God. With a hum, and it will so humble you. When God uses you, you will not walk away saying, "I did that." You're going to walk away saying, "I can't do that," but it happened for the glory of God. Father, thank you for your word this morning.